Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, if you know me, you probably have encountered an aspect of my personality that loves finding a good deal. Um, if, <laughs> if there's one thing that I, I could chalk up like on a resume or if I was trying to like explain to somebody that I feel like I'm pretty good at, it's finding a deal when there's a deal. You know, I'm not great at a lot of things. Like I like to try things a lot and I like to think that I'm good at some things when in reality I know I'm not. But I, th- I think with confidence and not, not like braggadociously, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm good at finding a deal. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, it's gotten me into trouble, and it can be a little bit embarrassing sometimes uh, when my friends hang out with me <laughs> or my wife hangs out with me uh, because a lot of the times I'm more preoccupied about getting a good deal than actually what I'm actually getting, uh, <laughs> if that makes any sense. You know, Adam was with me the other day. I was trying to find a flight, and he's like, I would have given up like 20 minutes ago. And I'm still trying to find out what's going to be the best route to get the best deal in order to maximize uh, everything. And uh, it's just an aspect and character of my personality. In fact, when I was in ministry school, uh, we would frequent this establishment called Buffalo Wild Wings. And um, it was something that we did all the time. Uh, And they had these Tuesday, like, 50-cent wing days that were, like, a pretty good deal. But even in ministry school, like, I could eat like three wings if they were 50 cents uh, because we were broke (laughs) and we were dirt poor. So I figured this out when I was going with my rich friends to eat um, that I could fill out a survey at the end of the receipt and turn that in for a free order of wings. And so it started this habit where I'd go to the restaurant and I'd order a 60 cent thing of ranch dressing. Um, (laughs) And that would be all that I'd order, and I'd ask for the check, and I'd get a really bizarre look, but that's just how it went. I'd get an ice water, and then I would proceed to fill out the survey at the bottom of the receipt and turn it in and get my free order of wings. Now, for some of my friends, that was a questionable thing to do. (laughs) In fact, the leadership of the ministry school removed me from spiritual advisory capacity because they were like, You know, that's genius, but that's not ethical, and that's not right. I would argue that if if someplace has a program that you can use, I mean, go for it. Just saying. This is how how I'm starting the podcast. This is how I'm starting my sermon. And I realize that that probably doesn't establish, like, credibility with me as uh, the spiritual influence in the room right now. But I want you to track with me for a second. I realize that was kind of sketchy. But uh, what I would always do is I would always tip as if I was paying full price. So, you know, I'm patting myself on the back. I felt like I was doing pretty good. I didn't tip on like 60 cents and give my waitress like a nickel. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) That's not even right math, but whatever. Um, It... it, uh, it was somewhat embarrassing for my friends that I'd go out with, and eventually they just started buying my meal. So it worked out for me, right? <laughs> it's one of those things. I found the loophole. I figured it out. Um, and so being married to me can be a little frustrating sometimes, especially for my wife, because I'm always shopping. <laughs> what? 
Especially, yeah, I, my wife is the only person married to me. I get what I'm saying. You guys are tracking with me. But I'm always looking for this deal, right? But I, can't, I tell you, it pays off sometimes. It really does, I promise. You know, a few years ago, my wife just gave me the thumbs up. A few years ago, we had the, we had the privilege uh, and, like, just the amazing opportunity to go to Hawaii. And uh, we've been back a number of times since. And uh, my friends, uh, I had this conversation with a friend one time. He's like, Nate, you're such an enigma. Like, I know you're a pastor and your wife is a school teacher, but you t- you're, like, traveling like crazy. How do you do that? And I realized that a lot of people might ask those questions. Um, I re- the first time that we traveled to Hawaii, uh, we actually made, like, $1,500 when we went to Hawaii. And I, there's something about just having the favor of the Lord and finding good deals and just God coming through in a big way. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I'm like, I feel good when I can find a deal, right? In fact, we all do, don't we? We feel good when we find deals. That's the whole thing. Like, uh, th- I mean, market research can kind of attest to this. Retailers will jack up the price of products um, during the summer and like before Black Friday um, to where when they're discounted on Black Friday and like Cyber Monday, uh, all of a sudden there's this, there's this notion that, oh man, I'm saving hundreds of dollars if I buy it now, when in reality the price was just inflated anyway, and you're really not saving all that much money. But when you see that, oh, I'm saving 75%, uh, oh, I, I could buy this, right? It's this idea that you're getting a deal. I realize there are some good deals to be had around those times, but um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the time you're not getting as good of a deal as you actually think that you are, and so. But it drives up sales. It drives up people coming to retailers and spending more money. And uh, just a little tidbit, like a little bit of life advice: if you're spending money in any capacity, it doesn't matter how much off it is, you're not actually saving money. Does that make sense? Like if it's like, oh man, I found this good deal and it's 50% off, I'm saving $500. No, you still spent $500. <laughs> That's something that I wrestle with and that God's working with me on because I, I love finding a deal. In fact, I even have this app on my phone called Slick Deals and it's a bunch of people like me that scour the internet for the best deals, if something's like mispriced on some obscure website, it'll come to my phone and I'm saying, I don't really need a, a digital thermometer right now, but I'm buying 20 of them because they're mispriced at a dollar. I did this the other day and I sold them on eBay and I made $16. But <laughs> it's this thing that elicits a deal, right? We want a deal. It's something in human nature. We want to feel like we're getting more for our effort or more for our money or than we actually deserve, right? Because then it makes us feel like we won. Anybody like me? Is there anybody here like extreme couponers? Anything like that? I love coupons. I love saving money, right? <laughs> but I hate to break it to you. When it comes to serving Jesus, there are no discounts. There's no flash sales. There isn't a shortcut or a loophole for you to exploit. But our culture likes to perpetuate the notion that there is. You see, you might say, whoa, Pastor Nate, how are you drawing this connection here? Why are you saying there's no shortcuts, there's no sales, there's no discounts, there's no coupons? 
I thought salvation was a gift. I thought it was free in Jesus in the first place. What are you talking, like, so that's the best deal of all. Like, how do you reconcile that? And I want to be very clear. I believe salvation is free. 100%. I believe that salvation is a gift in meaning that there's nothing that you could do for your situation to make it better. There's nothing that you could do to get into right standing with God. It's not that you could somehow check off a long list of items and things to do and I's to dot and T's to cross (laughs) that you could somehow be right with God. There's nothing that you could do to earn it, but our culture has so missed what it actually means to follow Jesus on what we were called to when Jesus called us to be disciples of him. You see, we were saved from our sin so that we could be with Jesus. Salvation exists as the entry point into life abundantly. What Jesus did for us on Calvary, I believe, was the entry point, was the gate to cross us over into a life following Jesus. And so as much as I love the fact that salvation was free, as much as I am so amazed at the priceless gift that Jesus gave us in his son dying on a cross to make things right so that we could be with God. So many of us have settled for the fact that we are in right standing, that we're justified with God, that we said a prayer one time and now things are good, that that was where we stopped following Jesus. It's like we walked through the gate And we just kind of planted our feet there and set up camp where Jesus is still moving. And he says to us, follow me. And I want to be the first to tell you that um, it is so, so worth your while to keep following Jesus. Don't stop at merely being saved. Don't stop at just settling for your sins being accounted for. And you know what? You got your I'm not going to hell card. (laughs) There's so much more when it comes to following Jesus. You see, our our culture kind of continues to treat Jesus as something that we add to what we've already got going on, right? We treat Jesus as an addition. And I've talked about this multiple times in the last number of weeks, but we treat Jesus as an addition to our life on how can we make our life easier? How can we make our life better? Because what we've got going on is probably a pretty sweet deal, right? You know, we've got family, we've got some money in the bank, we've got our health, we've got these things. But you know what? I really just wish I knew what was going to happen to me when I die. So I'm going to pray this prayer, stick the card in my pocket, and that's going to be it. Like, (laughs) Jesus is more of our, like, insurance policy than the one that directs our life, right? You see, adding Jesus to your life was never presented as an option from the Messiah. He never, he never said, hey, just, you know what, when you can make room for me, make some time for me, right? I know you're busy, I know your schedule's intense, I know you work all the time, and I know you have a ton of stuff that you like to do, and maybe if, maybe if you could just come to church like two or three times a year, like that would be good. Like That's not what Jesus invited us to. That's not what Jesus called us to, but we've settled for that as a culture, as a society. 
We've treated that as normal. Do you know when they're taking like research of America on those that consider themselves to be Bible-believing Christians that are active in church? You know how many times that they're actually having to go to church a year in order to be considered active in this most recent study that I read from Barna? Twice. You have to be, did you attend church in the last six months? And if you attended church in the last six months, then you're considered an active Christian. Friends, that is not true. If you've only been here once, and if you're visiting with us today, that's fine. Uh, that's not what I'm getting at. But if I only see your face like once every six months, I don't consider you a part of our church. I'm sorry. I get people that tell me this is their church that I've never seen in our church. I'm serious. I've been here, I've been here for 10 years now, and I still run into people like outside that, that came here before I was here as a pastor. And they tell me, oh, yeah, First Assembly of God, yeah, that's my church. I grew up there. Yeah, how are things going? I'm like, I don't, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> like, where have you been? Things good? I'm just saying, there's more to it than that. I'm not talking about church attendance this morning, but Jesus continually spoke of laying down your life to pick up your cross to follow him. And so my question is, how did we get such a diluted version of what it means to follow Jesus? Like, how did we get here? Because I can, I, I can understand, you know, it's easier to pitch the notion of, hey, things are like hard in your life right now. Here's a Jesus pill. Take it and things are going to get better. Right? I, I mean, the notion is like, oh, things are rough and I know the fix to your life. Jesus can make it better. Here, let's do this. And maybe your marriage is struggling or your kids are struggling or these things. But, do you know, in reality, like that isn't. The, like, that isn't like the, the sales pitch Jesus ever used to encourage people to follow him. Was that your life is rough and your life sucks. Like it needs to get better. So just invite me in and things are going to get better. Jesus never kind of sells that version of the gospel. Now, do I believe life with Jesus makes things better? Yes, 100%. I believe that life with Jesus 100% makes my marriage so much better than it was without Jesus. I believe my family serving Jesus is infinitely better than it was without him in the equation or in the picture. But I, I need you to understand the motivation doesn't work out that way. And it's a poor selling point for the gospel because in reality, serving Jesus has made my life considerably harder than it would be if I would have rejected the gospel. I, 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 I know I just talked about going to Hawaii and all this stuff, but I don't make a ton of money being a pastor. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm being honest. Like, that's, please, I love that the church supports. I, I get to make something for being, that's awesome. So please take that just very lightly. But in reality, I could be doing something else. I could be somewhere else. I could be doing different things. And in, in, a, in, a, in a worldly perspective, things probably could be easier for my life. I'm not saying that they would with 100% certainty. But if anything, serving Jesus is one of the hardest things that I've ever done. It's simple. Jesus promises it to be simple, but he never promises it to be easy. And I need you guys to understand this. I need you guys to track with me because when we're inviting people to serve Jesus, when we're inviting people into this gospel lifestyle, it's not so much of God's going to make your life like 10 times better and you're going to get a Ferrari. 
There's some people that preach that, but that's not in the book that I read. You know, Adam did a great job sharing the work that they're doing last week, talking about, I mean, when we're inviting people to this life in Jesus, we're inviting them to forsake everything that they know. I mean, they're, they're forsaking family. They're literally having to give up everything to say yes to Jesus. And it's a lot harder than what we kind of perpetuate this thought. And maybe, maybe you were told when, when you decided to give your life to Jesus, maybe you were told a lie that, you know what, things are going to just get easier and better from here on out. And you started living life and things were hard. <laughs> and things still just kind of sucked. Can I say that? I hope that's okay. Because in reality, sometimes that's the truth, right? <laughs> and you're just like, how does this play out? What does this look like? You see, it's always easier to pitch the gospel uh, to people in the sense of that they can just say a prayer and that it's going to be like this magic thing that just makes life easier and better. Like we have some kind of now, like it's going to be better for you because you've got like a cosmic genie on your side that you can just ask Jesus whatever you need, whenever you need it, and it's going to make all your wants and desires come true. You see, salvation, I believe, is free, but following Jesus will cost you everything. So what does the, this invitation to follow Jesus actually look like? How should we actually present it to people? How did Jesus himself present it to the people that he invited to follow him? Uh, in Luke 14, if you guys want to turn with me there. Jesus is so cool, friends. I stinking love Jesus. He's awesome. Beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14, it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So there were a lot of people that were willing to be associated with Jesus. There were a lot of people that were content with just being around Jesus, that wanted, him, wanted to see him do something, wanted to see him do another miracle, perform another trick, uh, maybe feed them a good meal. There were a lot of people around Jesus, and it's a pretty consistent theme, but if you go on to kind of finish the book, I, I, hate to, I hate to break it to you. When he's hanging on a cross, the crowds aren't there anymore. Some of his closest followers aren't there anymore. <laughs> so that tells me that there's going to be people that seriously like think that Jesus is an okay guy. They're going, to, they're going to recognize maybe Jesus as Messiah and think, man, he's cool. But they're not going to follow through on what Jesus invites them to here in this next uh, portion of Scripture. But it goes on to say in 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. I love, the New Living Translation brings clarity to this because you're like, I've got to hate my mom. Like, I've got to hate my kids. Like, that doesn't sound like Jesus, Pastor Nate. Like, this is weird. It's talking about your love for these people, if it doesn't seem like hatred in comparison to your love for the Lord, like, you're missing out. That's how radically we're called to love Jesus. He says, uh, in the New Living Translation, actually even puts that in there. It says, if you do not hate your father and mother by comparison, <laughs> wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet... Even your own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. 
And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 men, oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Those are the words from Jesus there. That's not the words of me. I'm not going to pass the offering plate and say, give me everything you have. Trust me. (laughs) I wouldn't do us a lot of good. What Jesus is talking about here is living sacrificially for his kingdom. Living in such a way that costs you something. And, and, you know, we talked about it when I I spoke on the rich young ruler two weeks ago. You know, I I don't believe that the call is for every single person that says yes to Jesus to empty their bank accounts, sell their homes, and completely get rid of all material possessions and renounce that way of life. That's not what I'm saying. But the willingness to do so, if God ever asks you to, has to be a resounding yes. Because if there's ever a cost that is too high, be sure that it'll find you out. And I believe that there are men and women that God has asked to sell and give everything. And they responded with a no. And maybe some pastor one day told him that, you know what, it's okay. Jesus would never ask you to do that. (laughs) I'm not going to lay that before you. But if God ever does ask you to give something (laughs) sacrificially, whether it be whether it be a relationship, whether it be uh, whether it be friendship, whether it be money, whether it be home, or maybe it's your very life, as what he talks about here, and calls you to go to the mission field. Friends, I want us to live with such a yes in our heart that if God ever put a put a finger on something in our life and said, "Can I have that?" I want it to be yes without without hesitation. I want to be able to say, God, you have everything in my life. And if it's the the last 20 cents in my bank account, you can have it. If it's the 20 million that's making interest and killing it in the bank, you can have it. I want to live in such a way that God has access to every little thing in my life. Because when we don't, when we say, God, you can have some of it, you can have most of it, that eventually becomes a master and an idol in our life. Guaranteed. So the message, the, the, the background here is not that you would, would take this and say, oh, Pastor Nate said, I just got to get rid of everything. But live your life in such a way that if he ever asks for anything, it's his. Does it make sense? Hmm. <laughs> I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, says this in the Cost of Discipleship. He says, the only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. He's saying, you don't get to say that you're justified just by grace alone. 
if you've not given everything, if you've not left everything, if you've not suffered loss in following Jesus. Continues on with that same passage to say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the invitation, friends, of following Jesus. And can you, can you wonder here maybe why that doesn't go over so well with large crowds in our culture? We have a lot, friends. <laughs> we have security. Most of us probably drove here today in a car that maybe runs. <laughs> like, we have stuff. <laughs> We have comfort. We have security. <laughs> and Jesus says, leave it all and come follow me. <laughs> what? Like, I don't, I don't see a lot of people signing up at, like, the youth rally for that one when you got the packed out stadium saying, Jesus is calling you to a life of suffering and pain and leaving everything that you love and like and hold dear to come find something that's immaterial. <laughs> like, sign me up for that one, Jesus. <laughs> right? doesn't preach easy. <laughs> like, it doesn't elicit the same responses. Hey, if you pray this prayer right now, if you give your life to Jesus, every, every wrong thing in your life is going to be made right, and he's going to give you a Bentley. Right? Like, everybody would say, sign me up for that one. Right? Nobody without hesitation, if I said, Jesus was going to give you a million dollars when you walk out that door. Like, I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you have no grid on who Jesus is. You're coming up and you're signing your life away saying, hey, that sounds good to me, right? <laughs> but when I read the Gospels and I look at Scripture, I see this principle to be true that when we're invited to follow Jesus, it actually costs us something. I think there might just be this misunderstanding here that, you know, the gift of salvation is just that. It's a gift. But it's a gift that enables us to go on the greatest journey that any man could ever know, and that is to follow the man Jesus wherever he goes. The gift of salvation was to get you to where he is. And that's just the starting point. That's just the entry gate. Because he has a life that is so abundantly beyond measure. I, I, just such a blessing that is so good. I said good, not easy. But good that he has in store for you and that he wants for you. But we don't always think of good and we, we kind of think of good and easy as like the like synonyms, but they're not. <laughs> I'd hate to break it to you. In fact, uh, I love to cook. Anybody here love to cook? Um, like three people? That's good. Um, how many of you guys like to eat good food? Everybody's hands should go up, right? Oh, it's funny how many more hands went up. <laughs> but... Like, right, you can go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger, and it can be easy and cheap, right? <laughs> or you could go to uh, Sage, which is also actually pretty quick, um, but considerably more expensive, and it's far better. <laughs> and the amount of care that they put into it is not as easy as just popping something in a microwave, right? 
I'm trying to think of something here. You know, I'm, I'm dry aging steaks. And for whatever reason, this keeps coming out in my sermons. Maybe I have an idol in my life. But I love, I love red meat. And I've got this funky mess down in the fridge of the basement of the church that if you looked at it, it would be like, that's weird, Pastor Nate. But I'm dry aging some steaks. And the hard part is I'm having to wait like 60 days. Um, I was only going to do 40. And I decided, let's go all out. Let's do 60 because it's going to be extra good. But there's this process of waiting, right? <laughs> there's a process that goes through. But can I tell you, it's going to be worth it. And almost every good thing in life is worth waiting for. Good things that God has in store for you cost something, do they not? Maybe it's time, maybe it's energy, maybe it's actually money. I'm not saying that you can buy God, but he asks us to give. He asks us to, there's all kinds of things there. And I'm just trying to get to the principle that what God invites us to is good, even if it's not always easy. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Okay, well, this brings me to the start of my message. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to be very quick here, I promise. Verse 24 has a, has a, a particular um, powerful statement in it um, that comes from King David. He's on the threshing floor of Orna. And uh, we're going to read the whole story here. But he says he's preparing an, an offering and a sacrifice before the Lord. And his response, um, uh, Orna decides that he's just going to give David the land to make an altar. And he's going to give David the oxen to make the sacrifice. And David responds to him saying, <laughs> saying this. He says, no, but I will surely buy it for full price for I will not take what is yours for the Lord. I will not offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. In 2 Samuel 24, which we're actually probably most of us are going to be in in our deeper projects this week. It's the very end of 2 Samuel. We recount the same story. It says, I'm not going to offer God that which costs me nothing. There is something about worship. There's something about sacrifice. There is something about serving Jesus that will cost you. Does that make sense? track with me there. And so I want to I wanna speak with you today um, about that which costs us nothing. Mm. I'm going to read 1 Chronicles chapter 21 in its entirety very quickly for us. It says in verse 1, Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba to the south to Dan in the north and bring me a report so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But my, why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But the king insisted that they take the census, so Joab traveled throughout all of Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of the people to David. There were 1,100,000 warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword, and 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what the king had made him do. 
And it goes on in verse 7 to say, God was very displeased with the census and he punished Israel for it. You're like thinking, you might be thinking here like I was thinking the first time I read this, like, why is this a big deal, right? Like, we're counting people. Like, what's wrong with this? So you have to understand David's sin, what actually went wrong here in the first place. Um, and so I want to I pause there and just uh, talk about it for a second. You see, David's sin here was that uh, he was counting people, and that immediately from a, from a Hebraic context in this culture in the ancient Near East, um, you were only allowed to count what was yours. Uh, and that may sound weird, and that may sound like a, that may sound like a, a stretch, like, what are you talking about? Um, David's act of counting Israel here was a sign that he took claim to the people of Israel. And so it was actually an elevation of pride in the life of David. It was a sign of hubris saying, this is my kingdom, and I want to know what's going on with it. And so we see other times where the people were counted, where God instructed a census to take place. Even back in Exodus chapter 30, we see God giving rules for conducting a census. And, but it has to come from the command of the Lord. And what would happen is that the people would actually have to provide a ransom for themselves before the Lord. And so there was, there was a heavy price to be paid whenever a census was taking place. But what David is saying here and what David is doing here, and more than likely he's trying to amass and figure out how many people that he can have in his army, because that's what he's saying here. He's asking how many people can handle a sword because he wants to go to battle with other nations. It's one of these things where he's kind of in the place, I'm king now, and he had forgotten how he got to the position that he was in. You have to remember, David did not get to the position that he was in by having a big army, right? He didn't become king of Israel because he was born to nobility. He became king because he was a, a sheep herder on the back of a mountain singing songs to the Lord. And God so desired a man after his own heart, chose him from out of all of his brothers and anointed him as king. Right? He didn't get to his, his place of military victory just by being like super good at it. We saw the hand of the Lord with him again and again and again. Right? You remember when he takes down Goliath with a, with a sling and a stone? You can't chalk that up just because David was super good at it. It was again and again the Lord was with him. And here he's placing himself, he's forgetting about the fact that the Lord is with him. He's looking to material means. He's looking to a carnal answer for a carnal problem rather than encountering the Lord and hearing from God what he should do. And so he begins to, uh, he begins to take account of the people. And to me, the, the sin of David here was one, a sign of his pride. It showed, it showed this hubris. It showed that, this is, that he uh, had gotten to this place where he was in charge. And so he was going to count the people as if they were his own. As if this kingdom was his own and not the Lord's. It shows a distrust in the Lord because he was placing his faith in how many men served him. And how strong his army was rather than, is the Lord with me or not? And it was a blatant disregard for wise counsel. Joab is not my favorite guy uh, in, in the book. Joab is kind of a, a scoundrel, if you will. 
But here he has some sound advice for David, right? He says, David, don't do this thing. <laughs> don't do this. Like, why are you going to cause Israel to sin by doing this? Like, why? Like, listen, take wise counsel, David. This is not a good idea. Like, Israel is with you. Like, the people are with you. It goes on, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But my, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Like, David, like, it's good. Like, you're fine. Like, just serve the Lord. You don't need to figure out how many people are in your army. Which seems like, I, I realize in our cultural context, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in this context, it was a huge and massive deal. And so, so what's the big deal, David? <laughs> Not only here does he reject this counsel, but if you read the parallel story in 2 Samuel chapter 4, or chapter 24, you're going to see that all the commanders of the army actually said the same thing to David, and he rejected their counsel as well. And it goes on, and it takes 10 months for this census to be conducted. I want you to think about that because this wasn't like a, a one-night thing. How many of you guys have just made a mistake, right? And you woke up the next morning and realized, man, I blew it. I need to fix that, right? How many of you guys have made a mistake over the course of like a year and then finally came to your senses? Like, oh, man, I was being an idiot. I've done that too. Um, hopefully, we, we probably have all done both. But this was the latter of those. This wasn't just like a, a mistake that was made inadvertently and realized, man, I was just being an idiot. I need to fix this. This was something that was continual and ongoing for the course of 10 months. And it comes to the place where very quickly after the census is done, it says that God was very displeased. This is in verse 7 with the census, and he punished Israel for it. And God, and then David said to God, he comes to the self-realization of his sin, his conscience, the spirit of God working inside of him brings conviction upon what he's done, upon the sin that he's committed. And it says that David says to God, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. Good on David, right? Like solid, that's good. When you make a mistake, when you do something stupid, when you fall into sin, when you walk against the counsel of the Lord and the counsel of wise friends, and you make mistakes, be like David here and be quick to acknowledge the fact that you've been stupid. Don't let it take 10 months like he did, but like let it repent. That's what David does here, and he's good at that. And I love this about David because even though there was 10 months that kind of went by, this length of time... Um, he still recognizes his sin. And so regardless of if it's a quick thing, regardless if it's an ongoing issue, I believe it's important for us to take David's, David's lead here and respond with admitting our guilt before the Lord and asking him to make things right. But the Lord speaks to Gad, David's prophet, with this message. He says, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments, and I will inflict it on you. That's just kind of like painful. Did anybody have the, the parents that would like say, go get the belt or the rod, or, and you got to choose like what you got whipped with? No? <laughs> it's kind of like what the Lord's doing here. It's like, David, you sinned. There's punishment for sin. There's justice that has to come about. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you choose the punishment, right? <laughs> Goes on and saying, so he gives three different choices. 
that you may choose three years of famine, three months of destruction by the sword of your enemies, or three days of severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation throughout the land of Israel. Decide what answer I should give uh, the Lord who sent me. And he responds in 13, and this is what I love. He says, I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into human hands. I love David's response here. I love his choice. I love the the thinking behind it when he says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. It's something that he's known from experience, right? This, this exploit, this, what we're reading here, uh, even though it's at the very end of the book of 2 Samuel, it actually doesn't take place after uh, David's dead because a few chapters earlier, David dies, um, just so you guys know. <laughs> and he gives his last word. So this was, this was an appendix to the book, and it was placed somewhere in the latter half of his reign. We know that it was happened after uh, David and Bathsheba and just the mess that was, but he still experienced the Lord's mercy when he, ex- when he sinned greatly there. And he looks back on the hand of God's mercy throughout his life to, tr- to know that God's faithful and kind, and he extends mercy even when we make mistakes, even when we completely blow it. And for me, friends, that's something I continually go back to. I've made mistakes. I've done things wrong, believe it or not. I'm not perfect. I know that's startling revelation for none of you. Um, But I come back to this place of looking back on what God's done in my life, and I can find myself rooted in his mercy and so grateful for it. But I love just 13. He starts off, he says, I'm in a desperate situation. And friends, I need you to know any time that you've sinned, any time that we're living in sin, any time that we've kind of uh, walked down this foolish road of just disregarding the obedient, the, we disregard the instruction of the Lord and we walk in disobedience, we find ourselves in a desperate situation. And the only hope for us is the mercy of God. You see, he responds here with the, let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. It doesn't mean that it wasn't harsh. It doesn't mean that it wasn't fierce judgment, which we're going to read about here. But if he fell into the hands of famine and, and plague, you know, his house would have been somewhat safe from that, right? Or, not plague, but uh, famine, uh, because he was rich. And they would have still been at the hands of the mercy of of foreign nations to provide sustenance and food for, the, for those number of years. Hebrew, the Hebrew here actually says seven years. Uh, this translation says three, so it's a point of we're not sure which one it is, but it's probably three. Um, but for three years, and they would have to rely on other nations and be at the mercy of other nations to provide their sustenance. Right? And then, or they could be uh, three, uh, three months um, of destruction by the swords of your enemies. They would have been at the hand and the mercy of foreign invaders. <laughs> but when they, they, he chooses this plague from the angel of the Lord, David says it would be better for us to fall into the hands of God because he's merciful. And as much as the Lord is merciful, there's still repercussions for sin. There's still justice that is being served. And we read about here in 14, it says, The Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 people 
Think about that. 70,000 people died as a result. This wasn't a little thing in the eyes of God. And I, re- I recognize our culture will think that it is. But you have to understand here, all of Israel was in sin. Not just David. David, as the leader, took responsibility for what had happened. But the people of Israel were not without fault either. And it's easy to read this story and say, oh man, David, just a bad leader. He made some poor decisions and now all these innocent people are suffering. It says that Israel was actually led into sin and Israel was rebelling against the Lord under here. So, And we could walk through that. I don't have time, but just to put some perspective to it. And it says, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But just as the angel was preparing to destroy it, the Lord relented and said to the angel of death, stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with sword drawn, reaching out over Jerusalem. So David and the leaders of Israel put on burlap to show their deep distress and fell face down on the ground. And David said to God, I am the one who called for the census. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. But these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? O Lord my God, let your anger fall against me and my family, but do not destroy your people. So we see here David recognizing his sin, right? We see David recognizing the mistake that he made that brought this about. And he even goes as far as to say these people are innocent. These people don't deserve the destruction, even though we have, uh, even though we have record elsewhere to say that they were actually living in sin, that Israel were actually the ones uh, actually walking in sin. But we, we stop here and we see the heart of David in this moment, in repentance, in brokenness. And a command comes here in this moment. It says, The angel of the Lord told Gad to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him through Gad, Orna, who was busy threshing wheat at the time, turned and saw the angel there. His four sons, who were with him, ran away and hid. When Orna saw David approaching, he left his threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. David said to Orna, Let me buy this threshing floor from you at its full price. Then I will build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord the king, and use it as you wish. Orna said to David, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing boards for wood to build a fire on the altar and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. But King David replied to Orna, no, I insist on buying it for the full price. I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not present burnt offerings that have not cost me nothing. So David gave Orna 600 pieces of gold in payment for the threshing floor. And David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when David prayed, the Lord answered him by sending fire from heaven to burn up the offering on the altar. Then the Lord spoke to the angel who put the sword back in its sheath. When David saw that the Lord had answered his prayer, he offered sacrifices there on Orna's threshing floor. At the time, the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering that Moses had made in the wilderness were located at the place of worship in Gibeon. But David was not able to go there to inquire of God because he was terrified by the drawn sword of the angel of the Lord. And you go on to read in the very next, uh, very next uh, verse of the next chapter, 
that that is going to be the spot. David makes a decree and declares that the temple is going to be built at this site on the threshing floor of Orna. So there's so much going on here, friends. There's so much uh, to play. But I want to talk about God's mercy in all of this first. In judgment, in justice, God is bringing about punishment for sin here in the Old Testament, here in this picture. But in mercy, he pauses. In mercy, he stops. In mercy, he says to the angel of destruction, the angel of death, to stop. And the sword halts over Jerusalem, right? Well, it reminds me of something that took place at this very site back in the book of Genesis. You understand uh, the threshing floor of Orna here, we, we find out when the temple is later built, is actually located on Mount Moriah. And it's the same place where Abraham would take his son Isaac up the mountain and get ready to sacrifice his son with dagger drawn and get ready to give his son to the Lord and the Lord instructs him to stop and provides a sacrifice with a ram that's stuck in the thicket, right? And here we see again the mercy of the Lord saying, stop. (laughs) And I believe he's saying, I'm going to provide a sacrifice. Mount Moriah here, where this is located in the same range, not too far from, from where this exact spot is, is where Golgotha stands. where Jesus would be hung upon a cross. Where God wouldn't say stop. Where God wouldn't withhold the blow that would pay the price once and for all for you and me to be with Jesus, to be made right with God. David builds this altar here, recognizing that it needs to cost him something, that the real price has to be paid, and it happens at a threshing floor. And it, I, I don't have time to go into all the details and intricacies of how we could bring about the symbolism of, what taking, of what's taking place here. But throughout the New Testament even, God, God will use the imagery of a threshing floor, of separating wheat from chaff, of what will happen to man at the end of days. There's a separation that takes place at a threshing floor. From worthless things and something of value. And friends, I I believe that the Lord wants to have us set up altars at a place of decision. Set up altars at a place of separation from worthless things. What he deems of value, it's Leviticus 10.10, that we would would distinguish between the holy and the common. I believe it's at a place 
of decision here, a place of separation. That God shows mercy. I want you to think about this, right? The sacrifice with Abraham and Isaac. God provides another sacrifice. Blood is still spilt. Here, there's a sacrifice that's made. Blood is still spilt. Even when the temple, in all of its heyday, and there's animals being, being slaughtered and sin being atoned for, it was never a permanent solution, was it? God, in his mercy, withholds, fear, withholds fierce and utter destruction and judgment. But when it's his son, the one that didn't deserve it, right? The one that was truly innocent. He doesn't stop. <laughs> he doesn't provide another because he was the one that was slain one time once and for all. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go down this road, so I, I apologize. So I'm going to get back on track. I don't actually apologize for anything I said. I just don't want to go down that road yet. I was talking to Tyler yesterday saying that the message I have is really like two or three sermons. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. I believe where we are, friends, as a church, I believe what God's doing in this hour is that there is going to come a separating. There's going to come with a refining that God wants to take place amongst his people. I was going to use this imagery of a threshing floor to make a very pointed statement that I believe that there's no fire consuming sacrifices in the church today. I believe there's not fire on the altar. I believe we're not seeing revival like we anticipate and we expect. It's because we're offering sacrifices and service unto the Lord that actually doesn't cost us anything. That was the one thought that I was arrested with by the Holy Spirit as I was preparing this message. Is that we cry out for fire we ask God to meet us in power, but we're not actually willing to get up on the altar ourselves. In Romans, we're called to be living sacrifices. <laughs> we're okay with showing up and maybe giving a little bit of our time, and maybe a little bit of our money, but we're not actually willing to let our lives be laid down for the gospel's sake. And we wonder why God is not moving in our families. We wonder why God is not moving in our homes. And we look at the state of our culture, and we just say, oh, it's going to hell. Just, oh, that's so sad. But we're not willing to get on the altar ourselves and be used by God. We're waiting for somebody else. Maybe a zealous young missionary will take his family somewhere. 
We'll sit by and let the world die because we're unwilling to let it actually cost us something to be used by God. I say, I use the verse, I use the, the verse in Leviticus to distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. Because I believe the Lord is actually going to ask us in this next season to give up things that are precious to us. Not sin. Not things that are, that are necessarily bad. But I believe he's going to ask more from us. And I want to be prepared to say yes at any cost. We're comfortable. We're safe. We've got a church building. We've got a little bit of money in the bank. Like the lights are going to stay on for a little bit. But are we willing to say yes to what God is asking of us to do? Heck, we consider it a sacrifice. We consider it a burden to tell the person across the street about Jesus. That's not sacrificial. That's not something that actually cost us anything. That's actually just a command of Jesus that he's expecting us to do. What has our faith cost us? What has your yes to Jesus actually cost you? Because when I read this, when I read the words of Jesus, he's telling me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. What does that look like? I need that to be real in my life, friends. I need it to be real for this church that we would embrace the command of Jesus literally and say yes to him at any cost. Can I tell you, there's nothing that I've given up. There's no price that, that I've paid when giving my, my life to Jesus that I've not received blessing for 10 over. When I, when, I, when I talk about actually having something cost us for the Lord, every time I've made a sacrifice, every time I've given something that hurt, 100% of the time I've seen it return to me in full better than it ever was when it was a part of my life in the first place. In fact, I want to read this. I closed my notes, but I'm going to bring them back up. You guys okay for a moment? Oh... I love what Meyer says when I'm talking about these passages of Scripture. He says, where there is true, strong love to Jesus, it will cost us something. Love is the costliest of all undertakings, but what shall we mind if we gain Christ? You cannot give up for him without regaining everything you have once renounced, only it comes back purified and transfigured. Mm, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Mm. Oh, God. Clark, he's a Bible commentator. He says this. He who has a religion that costs him nothing has a religion that is worth nothing. Nor will any man esteem the ordinances of God if those ordinances cost him nothing. Friends, there is a cost. There's a cost in following Jesus. 
There is a demanding price to be had upon your comfort, upon your security, when you say yes to Jesus and you take up the cross to follow him. There is a peace that is, uh, that is undescribable. There is comfort from the Holy Spirit that is irreplaceable. There is provision and strength that come from Jesus and his word. And it's good. And it's so much better than the lie of comfort that the culture would try to sell you. At the end of the day, you have to know that it's worth it. There's a, there was a movie, it was pretty popular a few years ago. Um, and I, I'm really, I, I kind of, there's like a pet peeve for me when I hear preachers like use examples from movies. I don't know why, they're not all bad, anything. I just, I had a bad experience one time at a youth group where the guy never talked about the Bible, he just preached from a movie. And so, and like, and it was like a rated R movie too, so I hadn't seen it. Like, and the whole time I was thinking like, this guy's a joke. Even though there was some truth to what he's saying, I just kind of wrote off everything and kind of had a bad taste in my mouth for it ever since. But uh, I saw this movie, uh, Infinity War. Um, it was a Marvel movie a few years ago, and it was pretty good. I liked it. Uh, I saw it more than once. Um, but the whole premise of the movie is there's this bad guy named Thanos, and uh, it ends on a pretty like dark note where he kills half of the universe. And uh, uh, it... It was, it was a pretty dramatic ending, but after he d- goes through everything and it was a long battle for him and he had to kill his daughter and all these things, it was bad. Uh, he comes at the end and he has kind of this self-reflection moment with this uh, conversation with his daughter. <laughs> and after he's paid the price and everything's been done, he's kind of having this reflection thing and he says, uh, uh, she asks him, well, did you do it? <laughs> Did you do it, Dad? <laughs> he responds, <laughs> yeah, I did. What did it cost you? He responded, everything. <laughs> uh, and that, that image has just played in my mind as I was walking through this. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But I would go on to ask the question, was it worth it? Thanos would probably, he shouldn't say that. Don't use him as like a spiritual guide or anything like that. But I've never met someone who gave their life for Jesus, surrendered their all for Jesus, gave everything to follow him, and at the end of their day saying, you know what, I really wish I would have just lived my life for myself. In fact, my good friend Neil Umali shared with me while we were having coffee the other day. He said, if we knew the exchange rate of heaven, you'd so wish that you'd given more. If you knew the exchange rate of heaven, you would have given it all. It is always worth it to say yes to Jesus. In fact, Jesus even promises that it's not just going to be like immaterial things that we gain in the next life. When we read about the rich young ruler, there's a reward to be had in this life for following and serving Jesus as well. And no, friends, it's not more money. (laughs) It's not even an easier life, but I can tell you that it's worth it to follow him. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.